baseball. Baseball. <laughs> All Astros? I know is Dodgers did not make Suckers. a cut. So, <laughs> so happy about mm. that. Does Houston have a baseball team, Renee? They do, Daryl. <laughs> they do. A team which is for the third straight year going to the American League Championship Series. Oh, great. How the Mariners do this year? Oh, who cares? Hi, I'm Daryl Wandra Serrano. I'm Ariana Ruiz. I'm Renee Rocha. And this is Imagining Latinidades. Welcome to Imagining Latinidades. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we have got uh, an exciting program today looking uh, at the upcoming symposium. So it's our second event that we're hosting this year at the University of Iowa, second speaking event that we're hosting at the University of Iowa. Um, and we've got lots of other stuff to be talking about, um, including just that this is the time of the semester if you are uh, an academic, if you're a professor or an instructor or a graduate student or an undergraduate, that things are just getting kind of crazy. So, Or a baseball fan. Or if you're a baseball fan or if you're sick. So I'm joined today by everyone. We've got all three of us together for the first time since episode two. Yay. Mm-hmm. Yay. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Uh-huh. Sound a little more excited in here. Okay, all right. So I am Daryl Wanzer Serrano. I'm Renee Rocha. And I'm Mariana Ruiz. And you just heard all of that in our intro anyway. So so yeah, craziness of the midterm in the semester. It is just like I'm in grading purgatory. Yeah. I don't know about y'all. I already gave an exam that I'm finishing grading this weekend. That's good. Hey. I get Mine's due next week so that our students can be uh, staggered during both their yeah, I tried to do mine a little bit early, and then and then found out that someone else in my department was doing the exam in the exact same week as me. Yeah, I talked to a couple of students who were like, I think all of our professors tried to stagger it in such a way that they're all giving the exam around the same time. So I was like, oh, okay. But yeah, at Iowa, we're getting ready to start week eight, right? Or by the I, time this comes out, I guess we would have... I have no idea what week this is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's that sounds we're about at, right for mid semester. Yeah, we're in the middle of October. The middle, it's just just if, it if, feels so close to the ending yet so far. And before we know it, it'll be like finals week, which I'm like, bring it on! I'm ready. Let, let's just power through these next couple of weeks. All right, Renee, you're silent on this. You don't want to power through. Yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm in a rhythm right now. Also, starting today in Iowa. It's clear that winter is coming. Oh, yeah. I brought out the big jacket. No, Renee, I hate this. Renee's in I denial. Hate this. I hate it, too. I much prefer. I would I would gladly trade the scorching summer, Texas summers for these Iowa polar vortex no. winters. This What we're doing right now in October, this is mid-January in the Rio Grande Valley. Yeah. You know, this is worse than mid-January in the Rio Grande Valley. And it's October. I got to deal with this for another like three, four, five months. This is, uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. This, I'm not. And this is basically this. December in North Texas, yeah. right? I'm Los Angeles. Oh. We don't, we don't uh, have weather. Oh, it's you 70. Yeah. Oh, yeah, what, it's what's it going to be like tomorrow? It's 70. <laughs> exactly. Oh, is it, it going to rain? No. What about the next day? No. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Waking right. up in the, thir- in the, with temperatures in the 30s, people would be freaking out in Los Angeles. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. 
I have a friend who uh, who lives in the Florida Keys, and anytime the temperature drops below like sixty, it's like mayhem down. So that's there. my dream retirement spot. It's the one place in the country, you know, further south to Brownsville, Texas. The the Florida really? Keys. Yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea. Yeah. Do you like? Is it like? Is this like actually like a retirement? Now that you're a full professor and you and you're on phased retirement. Yeah. Is this basically like, is this, this is my, this my dream. dream? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Are you like they need to put a university. There's no university in Key West to my knowledge. So, well, no, but if you're, once you're at, once you're like retired, retired. Yeah. But you can like, you know, like fake retire. Okay. Yeah. Moosehead retire. Um, what else is going on before we get <laughs> talking about, before we start continue with planning our retirements? Uh, what else is I'm going on? I'm 37. This is a bad, this is a bad subject though. Oh, I can't wait till you turn 40. <laughs> it's going to be so much fun. <laughs> I mean, we'd have to somehow trick you into actually showing up uh-huh. to, a to a party. That would be tough. <laughs> outside would, outside would of be, work hours, that would be that would be very difficult. There, but we've got we've got a we've got a few years to plan for it. Yeah. Like we plan, plan a five k or something. Hmm? Plan like a five k or something. Ah, be like you know, Renee show up this five k, and then it's a party, or like a, a semi competitive uh, but not too competitive bike race. Uh huh. Uh huh. I don't race my bike. Because I'll crash. I can't crash my bike. My bike's worth more than my car. Well, especially after your battery died this week. It is true. <laughs> so for Imagining Latinidades, this is also kind of that mid-semester period. Uh, we just finished the first of our film series for the academic school year um, last night with a screening of La Bamba. How'd it go? How many people were there? It was a fair number of people. We didn't actually get a chance to to count everyone that was in there, but I'd say it was close to the 50 mark. You know, I think that's really great that we're having these that level of attendance. You know, we saw what the attendance was like at our opening conference and we see what they're like at these other events, you know, and I think it's really it shows a lot about how sort of hungry and ready the community is for this type of programming that, you know, on a weekday night, you know, you can have a film screening like that and you can get that big of an audience, you know, not students coming for like extra credit or, you know, other things like that, you know, just people generally interested in the type of programming related to sort of you know Latinx studies that we have going on. Wonderful. Yeah, no, it was great. I was talking to um, a faculty member from Cornell College, I think she came out um, wow. for the screening yeah. as well. Yeah. And that's one of the things she mentioned. She was like, I wanted I needed to come out here and see this like this is I I miss being in this type of um environment where I'm watching myself on screen yeah um so thinking just about the importance of representation and and really the fact that as you said um there's a real energy and and desire for this type of programming and events what's the mix of it did you get a lot of uh sort of latino latino Latinx students did you or um individuals you know or did you get like a lot of sort of you know, more typical sort of white Iowan community members or like? There were quite a few students out, um, faculty members, uh, folks that I, I recognized. Um, there were white Iowans there as well. Mm-hmm. Um, probably not as large a number as as the Latina, Latino, Latinx folk, um, but definitely a, a good crowd. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, it seemed uh, I was just there for the beginning uh, to give the intro. I had to take off because it was the it's the it's the anniversary of my kid coming home from the NICU. Um, but uh, it seemed like a yeah, it seemed like a great crowd. I really I was really bummed that I didn't get to stay because it's this was I, I have distinct memories of seeing this film in the movie theater as a kid. Mm. Uh, it was the 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 first time. I mean, gosh, you know, probably the Probably the only time as a kid, because uh, we didn't go see we didn't go see Stand and Deliver. Um, 
Yeah, so it's definitely the first and maybe the only time as a kid seeing like Latinos on screen, mm-hmm. um, on the big screen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was obsessed with the music for like, I don't know, I mean, for for most of my life, probably. Yeah, and I was part of a conversation after the screening, and that was actually um, sort of the way that we started off the conversation uh, just because the film came out in 1987, directed by Luis Valdez. So this is like his um, film coming after uh, the success of Zoot Suit. Um, and just thinking about it as came out 87, it was something that I kind of was born watching. Um, it would randomly come out on TV on Saturday afternoons and I would watch it. Um, it was something that, you know, when I got to college, really close friends and I would just quote stuff, random things from the film. Um, and it's now, you know, generated all these memes as well. Um, so just all its different types of afterlives is, um, and the influence that it's had in, in sort of just my cultural upbringing. And this is a story of, of a Mexican-American um, musician, rock and roll star, um, so thinking about it as as also like a celebration of Latinidad, um, which I think was is a nice way to to frame it. Um, and also in that larger trajectory that kind of leads to um, narratives like Selena. Um, so these were all conversations that we had yesterday with uh, Kathleen Newman, who's a professor in cinematic arts and Spanish and Portuguese. Um, and she was able to give us a lot of insight into, you know, how it was framed within Luis Valdez's work, um, within Chicano cinema, things of that nature. Yeah, cool. We still got to get, we got, we, we need to like, you still, probably, I still haven't seen it. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was not going to. Uh, We're not going to point that out. Yeah. yeah I, was, no, I, wasn't, I appreciate that. Audience. I wasn't going to pick have, on you, Renee. <laughs> no, we have to pick on Renee about that. Um, but then you can you can equally pick on me for, for having never seen Selena. But I don't oh, think. But I don't think what? You, you just. What? 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 Even I've seen Selena. yourself. I'm the bar. If I've seen it, then, you know. Well, okay. All right. Yeah. All right. But. Uh, Wait. And, so you have seen it, Renee? I've seen Selena, of course. Okay, I'm from so South I, Texas. I, I, I'm from South Look, I welcome. understand that, but I just wasn't sure. I, I remember. Sure. I remember the like kids crying in school when we found out about Real? it. Yeah, yeah. She's a local hero. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I should like. Yes, I should. I should I have watched the entirety of Selena by now in in my life? Absolutely. Have I taught essays about Selena? Sure. Uh, you know, do I appreciate the? Uh, the 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 acting of Jennifer Lopez, absolutely, um, but I haven't seen the movie in its entirety. I've seen like clips. I've seen b- bits and pieces of it. Yeah, you've existed in the world. Well, you know, you know, what we should do. We should we should plan. Here's what we should do. We've got we've got some we've got some episodes coming up uh, that we don't have a plan for. Uh, and that's always a sh- good start. Yeah, and we yeah, <laughs> and we should we should. We should we should watch these films finally. So you, I, I've got the DVD of uh, of La Bamba at home. I'm assuming one of you has the DVD of Selena. Yeah. So we do. We can do a little like swap. We can watch them independently. All right. All right. Um, and then we can. Although, how fun would it be to see Renee watch these films in real time? <laughs> like, it would. It the would, commentary would be amazing. I bet it would be amazing. However. When are we going to find a time when the three of right. us can get true, together and true, watch true. two films? True. All right. All right. All right. We'll do it. So this is a plan for a future episode. We will we will provide we will ha- we will discuss La Bamba and Selena and our our different receptions of those, and we will probably also you know br- link a bunch of memes and stuff in the episode because 
I'm sure there are memes, uh, Selena related memes that I'm not appreciating mm-hmm. to their to their fullest, uh, and gifts that I'm not appreciating to their fullest. And the same can be said of Renee and La Bamba. Gifts or gifs? We haven't had this debate. Oh, yeah. this is the this, Latinx, Latin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think yeah, we need exactly. a Twitter poll. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This one, there's no debate. It's gifs. It's not gifs. <laughs> <laughs> Except you're wrong. <laughs> you say gifs? I say gifs, but I've heard, yeah. I've heard people say gifs. I say gifs. I, uh, no, I get that it's a G. I get sure. that it's a G. But I hear no, people no. mispronounce things all the time, but oh. it's, it's gifs, oh. not gifs. <laughs> I'm going to get what? like, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So send your Twitter uh, right, right. hate messages hate mail to Imagine Lat <laughs> at Imagine Lat <laughs> at Doctor DWS. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? One other thing uh, that we found out uh, before starting the the screening is that our next screening will be at the uh, at the new uh, film scene location uh, at Chauncey. Um, and that's, uh, that's exciting. Cause it's like, a I haven't been in that theater yeah, yet. Neither have I. It, it looks, looks great. Really sweet mm-hmm. from outside. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I've seen, I've seen like pictures and heard really wonderful things about it. And so we'll have a, uh, either a slightly or a much larger space still to be decided. Um, and that's going to be a December screening. I believe it's Wednesday, December 4th. Um, what are we watching? It is going to be the film Palante Siempre Palante, which is a documentary um, about the the young lords, particularly the New York young lords, uh, created by a former member of the young lords, Iris Morales, uh, who is an amazing human being, um, worked on this film for quite a long time uh, because she really wanted it to be um, to be as good of a, as kind of like good in terms of quality of a representation and a, and, and a, and a breadth of representation um, as, uh, as possible. Uh, and she's going to be here uh, for a Q and a after the film and she'll, she'll be on campus for, uh, for that day and the day prior visiting classes, giving some other lectures. Uh, so super excited about that. Um, I've, I've been at events with, uh, with Edis in the past and, and interviewed her a number, a number of times when I was working on my dissertation and my book. And so it's, uh, I'm excited that she's going to be coming to town. Um, she's such a, she's such a, a powerful presence, uh, especially for young folks. And so, um, I'm, ho- I'm, I'm going to see if I can, I'm going to see if I can try to maybe like get another like little interview or something on tape that we might use in the future, just because I think that her perspectives, uh, need to be preserved. Agreed. Yeah, that sounds like a wonderful opportunity. So definitely, if you're in the Iowa City area, that is something to uh, add to your calendars and check out. Yeah. And even if you're like not in like in in Iowa City, but you're close enough that you can make the drive, it's totally worth doing. So like, I'd say even if you're like, I don't know, in as far west as like Des Moines and Ames, as far east as maybe Bloomington Normal, um, it's worth making the drive out to 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 see the film and to and to be here for the Q and A. Looking forward to it. Uh, w- well, before that, I mean, b- before that film uh, film happens, we've got two more uh, speaking events um, here on campus. So, two of our one day symposia will be happening. the uh, The next one, which is the one we want to talk about for the rest of our time here today, uh, will be on Friday, October twenty fifth. Um, at Merge in downtown Iowa City on the Ped Mall. 
So this is a change in location from the opening conference, right? Yep. This is a, this is our one. Uh, the, this is the one speaking event, uh, you know, of our six that the there was a scheduling conflict at the public library, and we we weren't able to to have the space for the full day, and so we were. It's basically next door. Um, I think the building is even connected to the library. Mm. Um, it might even be owned by the library. Um, and it's a you know it's a it's a nice space we've we've been in there for uh for for kind of a walk through and set up and it's going to be you know plenty of space for for a big audience so um i think it's going to be yeah going to be a good place to have it um and so that will you know we'll have we, we have the information already up on our website um, which is imaginingletdini.ace.com. Uh, and like with the opening conference, we'll be doing a live stream and we'll have those details up on the web stri- website as we get closer to the event day. Uh, and so this, uh, this symposium is, is titled Latina, Latino, Latinx Migration. So tell us, Ariana, who's going to be here? So for the Latina, Latino, Latinx Migration uh, Symposium, we have three invited speakers, Maura Toro Morn, uh, Karma Chavez, and Fidencio Fefield Perez, who will be joining us. One of the things that I love about this symposium uh, is that, to me, it kind of captures the uh, the spirit that went into designing all of the Imagining Latinidades year. And that spirit is one that, the, what I'm thinking of in particular, is marked by interdisciplinarity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we've got in these speakers, you know, Maura, who's a sociologist by training, um, and Karma, who uh, comes from my field, from communication studies, particularly from rhetorical studies, uh, so more humanistic and critical. Um, and then Fidencio, who is an artist, right, and who's uh, who has an MFA from actually from the University of Iowa. Right. And he's currently an assistant professor of painting and drawing at the University of Missouri. Yeah. And th- this is, you know, for those of you who who are like, oh, that name is so familiar. Well, it, it should be familiar because... It's his artwork that is the featured artwork in all of our promotional materials. So the wire sculpture that uh, that we have on our website and in our podcast uh, cover and in all the flyers that we do, that's his work. And it's that that's a piece that I think we all saw, or I think I think I saw for the first time. I don't know if you were here yet, Adiana, when it was uh, on display at Art no, Building West for. Uh, I think it was on display at Art Building West in like 2012, 2013, 2014, somewhere around there. Um, and uh, yeah, he had uh, some of his work there, and th- this piece I think was one of the pieces there. Um, yeah, I became familiar with his work uh, through the Center for Workers Justice. I think he had done some stuff with them um, or in collaboration with them, and that's where um, I was first exposed to his work. And so when we were really thinking about, well, what type of image would capture this idea of imagining Latinidades, um, he came to mind, right? And and I think we all kind of saw his work and were like, yes, um, this is something that's not only rooted in the Midwest and his experience here, um, and thinking about just his background as um, a DACA recipient as well, um, but also just just the the image itself, the fact that you can't really make out um, particular bodies, mm-hmm. um, I think just speaks to to a lot of what what we're what we're wanting to do. Yeah, so I think you're right, Daryl. The interdisciplinarity here is absolutely representative of what we're trying to do. And you know, everyone here, if we later we'll talk about sort of what everyone is discussing. 
is really thematically tied. And so you have, and they're emphasizing some different things. Maybe there's a little bit of more emphasis on the idea of migration in the Midwest. In some cases, it's a little bit more uh, outside of that context, dealing with sort of more national discourse issues. And But we're all sort of hitting at the same thematic thing. We're coming at it with a little bit different emphasis and with um, these different disciplinary approaches. And this is exactly what we're trying to do. And we, I think, did a really great job in the first conference. And I think we're going to do a really good job with this one here as in terms of providing that wide perspective. Yeah. And like with the first conference, you know, we, we gave them wide berth to be able to decide exactly what they wanted to talk about. I mean, we had, we, we had our reasons that we were inviting each one of them. Um, but you know, we didn't know, we didn't know in advance exactly what their talk was going to be. You know, we had an idea of kind of the terrain that it would be operating within. Um, and so, you know, to, to see the, to see the final kind of topics and, and titles that they, uh, that they sent us and that they're, that they've been working on for, uh, for this, this symposium, uh, is, is really exciting. I think we're going to, I think it's going to be a great conversation. Um, and I also really look forward to the round table afterward because these are, you know, folks who've had, who've had different experiences with and connections to Latino, Latino studies. Um, and so I think it'll be, I think it'll be really enlightening. So let's get into this and talk about, uh, talk about our three invited speakers. Um, might as well do it in the order in which they'll be speaking when they're here on campus. So that goes, you know, that starts us off with, uh, with Maura, uh, whose paper will be titled Latinx Migrations in the Heartland, Genealogies of Belonging and Transformation. Yeah, so Mata is a professor of sociology and uh, director of Latin American and Latino studies at Illinois State. And um, she's, you know, what she's going to talk about seems like it was a little bit more rooted in the Midwest experience. Um, yeah, Ariana, aren't you? Yeah, and really Mata... Um her work seems to um, be framed around these questions of um, gender, social class, as as you mentioned, um, specifically here in the Midwest. And she's someone who's talked uh, a lot about just her own history and story as um, someone coming from Puerto Rico into the Midwest and thinking about um, the sense of um, community that's created in process um, and how that's that's also along with tension uh, that can arise. So I'm, I'm really interested to, to think about how we are looking at these genealogies um, of belonging and transformation um, and how they're, they're very much transnational in nature as well. Yeah, one of the things I really appreciate about her work, and I think it's a nice connection to the uh, work of the people who, who were at our opening conference is that it really is truly intersectional work. And I think that's the case for, actually for, for all of the people who are presenting at this symposium as well. You mentioned, Ariana, the, the kind of focus on community formation, and she does so in a way that really like is attentive to the connections between gender and class and social mobility. Um, and I think that makes it you know, I think that makes it really kind of really rich work to examine. Yeah, I mean, like, there's a lot of overlap here between perhaps what we saw with Gina's work in the first conference and what we're seeing here. This idea, uh, you know, Gina's work was also situated in the idea of sanctuary, and she was doing her work in Ohio, so we have the same sort of Midwest heartland component coming up. And 
one interesting thing about Gina's presentation is that there are these very, you know, she was sort of like hitting around some of these gendered aspects, but it wasn't really sort of the core of what she was talking about. And then as she was talking about when we got into the Q&A, that's really where a lot of the um, sort of questions came from, where the energy went. And so now we have this sort of very natural segue into this topic, which is going to bring that stuff really into the forefront. So in some ways you have this nice like evolution of that thread across the two conferences that I'm really excited to see. Yeah, absolutely, Renee. Um, you know, M- Mauro's paper is going to um, is going to address, uh, in, in her words, what we know, new insights, and the paradoxical nature of contemporary migrations in the heartland in this neoliberal age. Um, and I think that that Midwest focus is something I'm I'm very much looking forward to as well. You know, my my, uh, my own background in uh, in coming to like Puerto Rican studies and Latino Latino studies doesn't have a huge Midwest focus, which is odd because I am a professor at a Midwest at a university in the Midwest. My graduate degrees are from Indiana University, which is in the Midwest, and so I've got a lot of I've got like you know uh, informal personal experience with these topics uh, and through relationships with people um, with people who I've known, but not as much scholarly knowledge about it as uh, as as I as I would hope. Yeah. And I think the segues into karma's work a little bit, because uh, if you look at sort of my own intellectual trajectory, the idea of being really interested in immigration primarily as sort of a border policy or a border phenomenon and then coming to Iowa uh, I'm, I think I mentioned one of the previous episodes, I came here around the time you had the big Postville raid and Marshalltown raid. Mm-hmm. And that got me really interested in the idea of immigration enforcement within the interior, which is as a kid growing up in the Rio Grande Valley, not something I really care about. And so you have this idea of this sort of more interest in, you know, that's not really me being interested in the heartland necess- as specifically, but it's me being interested in the interior rather than in the border. And now we have this here emphasis um in Mario's work, but then if we go to uh, Karma's work, uh, the idea of this, you know, abolish ICE and rhetoric related to that, well, you know, like ICE as an institution is not, I mean, there's sort of this this conflation of ICE and Border Patrol that's going on a little bit here, Mm -hmm. but the importance of abolish ICE versus sort of like abolish Border Patrol, which is not necessarily Mm -hmm. the hashtag, is the idea of abolishing the institution which is disruptive to the lives of people who are settled in the United States, right? And therefore, who are also more likely to not necessarily be just on the border, but people who are settled within communities well within the U.S., like, you know, places like Iowa City or, you know, Marshalltown, Postville. But I think that's part of the conversation as well, that these borders are extending beyond what we think of as a borderland, right? Which is something that Mauda very much brings up in her work. So she talks about, like, being in an academic borderland um, and seeing it as an opportunity for innovation, right? Research as social change. Um, So she also turns to the quotidian, to, like, the everyday um, experiences of uh, Puerto Rican women um, in Chicago to think about some of these. Um, institutional changes that can happen um, from the ground up. How how much of that? So that that turn to the to the borderland, like I, part I read that partly uh, partly as just like the way in which the the figure of the borderland um, has become uh, kind of central to some segments of Latina Latina Latinx studies, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just there's a I guess what I'm saying is there's a lot of of 
theorizing through the borderland, you know, as a, a concept that's come out of in particular Chicana feminist theorizing. Right. Um, so like, to what extent then, like, what's the, I, I guess what my question is, what's the connection between uh, that kind of theoretical and methodological work, right, that, that helps to frame the various kinds of work that people do? What's the connection between that uh, and migration as such? Does that my question make sense? That question doesn't make sense at all. It maybe does. It just, um, can you rephrase it? Yeah, like, so there are ways of talking about the border, right, as a kind of, it, it as something that is connected up in very explicit and intimate ways to its, like, geographic and geopolitical specificity, right? Um, and there are ways of talking about borderlands as something that maps that idea onto a host of other contexts that may have no necessary or immediate connection to the border and to migration. So I guess the the question is what's the what's the relationship between thinking about um, between histories of and the politics of and sociological explorations of migration, right, mm-hmm. as a particular practice, um, but perhaps also as an optic. What's the connection between that and the border? Yeah, in like I'm I'm doing scare quotes here. The border or borderland. I mean, the way I see it is a lot of it is framed on in violence, right? And and the sort of violence that can occur in the borderlands, but also thinking about it as this in-between for possibility. Um, and so the way that I, I've, as I said, um, looking at Maura's work, um, she has a piece that she wrote um, a few years ago about her experience as a tenured Latina in the Midwest um, and a large part of that is framed through these crossings, um, whether it be institutional kind of borders that she's entering into or in terms of discipline or even in the classroom space um, at a predominantly white institution. Um, There is this sense of tension and pain and violence. And we are talking about it at scales as well, right? Um, That emerge from that idea of borderlands that I think is is quite interesting um for the type of of analysis that she's um providing i hadn't thought about the you said the word crossings and that yeah it made me it made me realize yeah that anytime we're talking about regardless and regardless i think of how we're talking about the border or borderlands it always entails those uh those that idea of crossing and movement and uh the kind of like flow of people and mm-hmm. ideas through that interstitial space mm-hmm. right um the and the the kind of like the heart the the like the trauma of that right the wound the the wounding nature of that i think anzal dua call, talks about it as the colonial wound mm-hmm. right uh, which is something that like decolonial scholars have picked up on uh, other decolonial scholars have picked up on as well um but but then there's also like there's the other part of the of of the border um, and and borderland and you know and kind of mestiza consciousness and mm-hmm. all these other kind of I I I have I have Anza Du on my mind mm-hmm, um, but, rightfully so when talking about borderland <laughs> but uh, that's the that's the like the the hopeful and the productive side of mm-hmm. that equation as well but that still also involves some sense some sense of a of an idea of movement right. 
You know, and on that point of crossings and really thinking about the Midwest, we have Karma Chavez, who is a chair and associate professor in the Department of Mexican-American and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Texas, Austin, um, who has her roots in the Midwest as well, in Nebraska. Um, Before our symposium, she will be discussing uh, hashtag abolish ICE at the intersections of Black radical thought and queer and trans migrant activism. Yeah, Karma's work. I, I've been I've been reading. Uh, so Karma, as I mentioned before, comes from uh, the same kind of disciplinary home, relatively speaking, that I do. And so I've had the pleasure of you know being at conferences with her for a long time. Uh, and this is you know, her her work is fantastic. So her her book that is on the topic most closely related to this talk is called Queer Migration Politics. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. It's an excellent book uh, that explores the uh, explores the kind of relationship, uh, some 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 different relationships between uh, queer theory as an analytic for engaging the topic of migration, but also is anchored in these uh, in in particular explorations of things like. Um, well, I'm having my students read this chapter uh, right before her visit. Um, uh, uh, manifestos related to queer migration uh, politics um, and a ho- host of other case studies uh, in the in the book. Definitely worth reading the book um, and uh, and her other scholarship as well. So I'm really excited about this talk um, because you know I th- I think that this is a really potentially fruitful uh, area of research. So I mean you know I'm be, uh, we'll see what it's like. I haven't I haven't seen the paper yet. I just have the proposal. Uh, in front of me, but this idea of sort of abolish ice intersections of black radical thought and queer and trans migrant activism. So I'll focus a little bit on the black radical thought uh, side of that, which seems to be sort of uh, newer in her research agenda. Uh, You know, there's a lot of connections here. What she's doing here is she's drawing this connection between our immigration system, uh, our usage of, of immigrants and immigrant labor, the way in which government interacts with immigrants and that immigrant labor and how it connects to our the historical relationship between government and the african-american population uh that is a really powerful and good analogy i actually teach an intro uh to politics and race course the entire theme here at here at iowa right i've only been teaching it for a few years the entire theme of that course is really understanding sort of the government as an agent of white supremacy and then understanding it through the context you know primarily of the black political experience and then it sort of like ends and pivots with this analogy of how the government's relationship with immigrants sort of like parallels that and actually not only sort of like in the modern day parallels its historical relationship with african-americans but also sort of historically paralleled the relationship with african-americans in regions of the country which didn't have large African-American populations and used Mexican and immigrant labor in somewhat, you know, of a parallel fashion to the way that black labor was used historically in the deep South. So there's a lot of connections here and seeing those fleshed out is going to be really cool. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a, and I think that one of the, uh, the, one of the shortcomings of uh, Latino, Latino, Latinx studies scholarship that, that people have been, have been starting to remedy, I think more so in recent years, uh, Lisa Marie Cacho's social death is one that really stands out to me as, as, as doing this as being one of the, uh, one of the, one of the earliest examples that I can think of of really doing this. Let me let me back up for a second. I, I think that the, the the shortcoming that I was that I was mentioning. So that shortcoming of Latina Latino Latinx Studies scholarship 
is I think not dealing well enough with the ways in which anti-blackness, right, has circulated with it, has has been in contact with Latinidad, right, in various kinds of ways, right. Sometimes from within Latino, Latino, Latinx communities. Sometimes in ways that are mapped onto the kinds of like racial scripts that then get imposed on Latino, Latino, Latinx communities. And so exploring these different dimensions of the connection between, uh, you know. On, on the one hand, African-American political experience in the United States and Latina, Latino, Latinx political experience in the United States, uh, but also in the kinds of like ways in which the processes of racialization have unfolded uh, in a manner that is connected, but also that gets that creates distinctions and divisions at different points in time, I think is like. This is like one of the key tasks of the field right now and, and that people are trying to to engage in. Yeah. And so, I mean, you know, we basically have a set of relationships here where you have a relationship between the African-American community and the U.S. government. Right. And then you have a relationship between the Latino community and the U.S. government. So, you know, the African-American community, the Latino community are different. And so that relationship is going to be different. But one actor there is the same. That's the government. Right. Mm -hmm. And the government acts in a pretty analogous way. And so drawing connections to Jim Crow or the, the other idea that she's going to be talking about here is the prison industrial complex. Right. Like the prison industrial complex is. um trying to incarcerate individuals of color. And it's, it, if they're African-American, if they're immigrants, right, like that's not necessarily an important key distinction from there. So their behavior is actually sort of pretty consistent across the sort of traditional criminal justice context and the immigrant detention context. Mm -hmm. And so having somebody really draw, draw out those analogies is going to be uh, useful. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think the, the, the key, perhaps maybe one of the key distinctions is the way in which after the Mexican-American War, right, the, that the way that Mexican-Americans were, were racialized, right? And that process of transformation from being mm -hmm. kind of like officially recognized as white, mm -hmm. right, for a period of time mm -hmm. uh, to then being, you know, then having these kinds of like already existing racial scripts transferred and being used uh, to, you know, to create a kind of a particular logic of racialization that is, that operates outside of the benefits of whiteness, right? Which is really like, this is Molina's work, right? Right, yeah. 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 It, it's nice to, again, as we'd mentioned earlier, think about how these pieces are talking not only to themselves for the day of the symposium, but also um, with folks that had come in already. So the, mm -hmm. these conversations of relationality um, definitely strike me as, as Natalia Molina's yeah. um, notion of racial script. And so if you think about how we organized the day, we actually, I think, organized it in a really good way because we're going to get that idea of immigrant heartland stuff. We're going to move into this idea of abolish ICE, its intersections with uh, queer migration and black radical thought. And then we'll move into this idea of the sort of more DACA experience, right? And so we're continuing. That's obviously something which is related to the sort of like abolish ICE enforcement experience, but, you know, treating it from a, from a very different disciplinary perspective. And so I think that that's a really good sort of progression thematically of the day. That leads us into uh, Fidencio Fefield Perez, um, who, as we mentioned earlier, is an assistant professor of painting and drawing at the University of Missouri. Um, Excuse Ariana's coughing. She is she is a sickie. I am the sickie that was referred to at the beginning of the podcast today. Um, and so Fidencio is coming from Oaxaca, Mexico, um, which shout out to Oaxaca as someone who 
has that Oaxacan uh, pride woo. as well. Woo woo. Um, but yeah, so he's coming from Oaxaca, Mexico, um, but he is raised in the United States. Um, and his work is really thinking about this debate over borders, edges, and the people who must traverse them. So really, again, um, just wonderfully situated within uh, the other uh, scholarship that we were mentioning today. And he is someone who was a DACA recipient. Um, and so that really manifests itself into the work that he produces. Um, and, and again, is what really caught our attention and our eye when we were considering the type of work that we wanted um, to represent imagining Latinidades. The other really interesting analogy here is going from somebody who's talking about rhetoric and discourse to the title of Fidential's work, which is Words Are No Help. It's an astute observation, Renee. I'm curious how he's going to unpack that part of the talk. Like, why is it Words Are No Help because they're too often just empty platitudes? Or is it Words Are No Help because uh, part of what the experience is that he's had and the experience that he tries to address through his artwork is something that just that that is kind of like outside of the realm of linguistic symbolization, yeah. right? Um, this is a, a post-discursive turn, right? That that it has to be kind of visually represented because you know perhaps because he's able to better tap into the kinds of like affective dimensions of uh, of these experiences uh, and of the kinds of transformations that. Um, that he would point us toward. Yeah, so maybe we'll have a very interesting roundtable if you can get there for the end of the day about the um, both power of and limits of discourse there. And one of the things that he mentions in the abstract is thinking about his techniques as a way to reconnect with the past um, and here, again, with that Oaxaca connection, it's part of like um, morning day of the dead, um, those types of... Uh, even indigeneity as it may be framed within um, a Oaxaca and Zapotec type of um, background. But it's also a past that's devoid of dehumanizing labels, scrutiny and surveillance. And so I'm wondering if that's how those labels also work into come into play. So that idea of words being no help um, as something that's tied to words label, right? So how can we think about um, a sense of self and self-expression beyond um, language? Yeah, I'm and I'm really curious also how, uh, you know, in his abstract, he taught he references map surfaces. Um, and I've, I've, I've been looking at the web at his website, trying to figure out if he has any examples of this up on the website and don't see them up there yet. Um, so this must be a really kind of new project for him. But I'm, I'm very I'm really interested in how he integrates these map surfaces and how he I'm, I'm guessing uses and manipulates them. Uh, and incorporates them into the pieces that he's producing right now, um, partly because you know it, it just it, maps are are that kind of like quintessential representation of spaces uh, that are tied to the you know really like the geopolitics of uh, of colonialism. Um, they're the they're the they're the most almost like the most like. I, sure, I'm going to say this. Maybe the most like naturalized representation of power in the kind of like geopolitical realm, right? Like people don't maps are when I when I'm talking about like borders with my students and stuff. The like 
hardest thing to get past, and thankfully there's great scholarship on this to help us to help us do this, but the hardest the hardest thing to get past is the idea that borders are what they are, right? This kind of acceptance that a border that the that a kind of geographical boundary for a country is this kind of like, you know, stable, natural thing. When even like we know that borders are kind of constantly being revised and contested and redrawn and yeah, I mean, this is even a concept I talk about in my class, right? And this sort of the the intro of trying to understand the relationship in immigration between Latin America and the United States, and and the integration that's there, uh, and the integration that has this is a result of the border having this sort of fluid meaning uh, across time, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, even of our sort of immigration policy at some points, not really caring about that border, and at other points, like right now, caring about it a lot and really reinforcing it. But again, that's it. There's a fluidity there across time, right? And so the solution of borders as um, static, but also borders in the ways that they're tied to nationalism, um, I think, are important to point out. Like, who are they supposed to keep out? Who are they supposed to um, protect and keep in at any particular historical or political moment in time? Mm-hmm. Of course, maps go beyond borders too, which is why I'm like really why I'm really curious what kinds of maps he's using, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because topographical maps, right, tell one particular kind of story, but maps are also just you know ways of visualizing different uh, geopolitical relations like borders and stuff, and 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 geographic and geological features, but also like other kinds of of social features too, right? We, you know, we can map housing, for example. We've seen, we've all probably seen these really powerful maps of, uh, of the redlining practices, right? Which really help to, you know, which are a really helpful form of map, especially in this day and age when we want to think about the kind of long-standing roots of income and wealth inequality in the United States and how that's tied to things like housing policy. So I'm kind of I'm just I'm curious what kinds of maps he's using. I'm 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 looking forward to seeing how yeah. he you know how he brings these uh, these materials and topics together and how those relate to uh, to his own experiences as a DACA recipient, especially in you know at this moment when DACA's on the docket for this current session of the Supreme Court, which just opened up like in the last week or so. Yeah, it's going to be a great day. Going to be a great conference. So yeah, it is going to be an excellent conference. Um, Thanks for listening into this episode today. Uh, We'll have all the information about the conference and about the people we've been talking about posted up on uh, our website. And we'll also put those links into the show notes for this podcast. So you can just kind of like scroll down or scroll over whatever the app you use does to find this information and be able to read the things that we've been talking about and see more, uh, learn more about these speakers. Uh, additionally, we'd love to hear your thoughts on Twitter. We're at Imagining Lat for the podcast. Uh, and you can also shoot us an email, which is uh, at podcast at imaginingletinidades.com. Uh, as always, we ask you to please share this podcast with friends. Um, and if you're listening on Apple or any other service that lets you rate and review podcasts, please consider giving us uh, the highest rating uh, and leaving a review. Those things really help us uh, increase the visibility for the podcast and ideally make it onto the different kinds of lists uh, that help to sustain an audience for us. So with all that said, uh, and all the begging to do those things, thanks for listening in. Uh, please check the show notes again for the links and sites and all the other stuff that we mentioned today. So thanks very much. Thanks.